0: The History Channel, original podcast.
1: Hey, History This Week listeners, Sally here. Today, we are bringing you an episode from the archives going all the way back to season one and all the way back to 1492. Hope you enjoy. History This Week, July 31st, 1492. I'm Sally Helm. In cities and towns and villages across late medieval Spain, whole districts have emptied out. Houses abandoned, stores all closed up. And synagogues, which until recently had been alive with singing and praying, now sitting quiet. Exactly four months earlier, in March, the King and Queen of Spain issued an edict. By royal decree, all Jews in Spain must convert to Catholicism or leave by the end of July. And so, for the past couple of months, these districts, the Jewish districts in medieval Spain, have been full of furious activity. Some Jews are baptized in hurried ceremonies so they can keep their homes and their lives. Others say, no way am I converting. They're forced to sell all their belongings and then flee to the border. Some try to get passage on a boat to North Africa. There are stories of captains charging people huge amounts of money and then throwing them overboard before they arrive. Others are attacked or killed before they leave the country. But in the centuries before this, the Iberian Peninsula had been home to some of the most lively and bustling Jewish communities in all of Europe. There had always been tension. But for the most part, the dominant Catholic Spaniards had lived relatively peacefully alongside Spanish Jews and Moorish Muslims. But all that has changed. In part because of the rise of one of the most notorious institutions in history, the Spanish Inquisition.
0: The idea that people could accuse you without witnesses, without knowing your accuser, I think those elements are perhaps rightfully uh, scary to us in the modern world. And there's rarely one smoking gun when it comes to widespread attacks, when it comes to genocide.
1: Today, what led to the infamous Spanish Inquisition? How did Spaniards and then the world start to think of religion as something in your blood? And how does this moment help us better understand the challenge of assimilation today?
2: plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: You've probably heard of the Spanish Inquisition, even if you maybe don't know all the details. This regime that began in the 1400s has a surprisingly prominent place in modern pop culture.
0: I think part of it has to do with Monty Python's presentation of the Spanish Inquisition
1: we called up Jewish studies professor Jonathan Ray from Georgetown University to help us understand the complexity of the Spanish Inquisition and what actually happened during it. In Monty Python's version, the Spanish Inquisition is always bursting in in their red robes saying,
0: Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition!
1: (laughs) So today, when you think of the Inquisition, you probably think of the Spanish Inquisition. But that wasn't the only Inquisition that happened in medieval times. And it was very different from the others. Across Europe, the Catholic Church ran Inquisitions to root out heretics.
0: The job of the Inquisition is to inquire into and to oversee Christian behavior and making sure that local Christians are towing the line and following the correct doctrine as espoused by the Church. And if not We can jail you or worse.
1: But it wasn't just Christians facing scrutiny. Even before these inquisitions began...
0: The Jews had already begun to be expelled from almost every other corner of Christian Europe. The Jews are expelled from England in 1290 and from sections of what is now France even earlier than that.
1: From what is now Germany and Italy, from the Holy Roman Empire.
0: And so... We sort of think of the Spanish expulsion of 1492 as this major event. One of the reasons it's so major, it's it's sort of the last great expulsion of the Jews from medieval Europe.
1: The story of these other expulsions is obviously complicated, but it went roughly like this. Starting around the 11th century, Catholic kingdoms had actually invited Jewish immigrants to settle in their territories largely because Jewish merchants often had connections to wealthy Mediterranean networks. There had been large Jewish populations in the Middle East and in places like Greece and Italy. So Catholic kingdoms in continental Europe thought,
0: You're plugging into wealthier parts of the world and trade networks by inviting these Jews in.
1: Things played out as the lords and kings had hoped. Jewish merchants helped establish thriving economies.
0: And when they do so, the Christians begin to say, well, okay, thank you, we can take it from here. We don't want Jewish competition. We don't want Jewish shoemakers, who are not in the Shoemakers Guild, to compete with us.
1: And there was another source of tension too, one that was both economic and religious.
0: There is a prohibition from various religious traditions that you're not supposed to be lending money at interest, what we call banking, uh, to your neighbor or your fellow. Well, the way that's interpreted in the Middle Ages is that Christians can't lend money at interest to Christians and Jews can't lend money at interest to Jews.
1: But Jews can lend money to their Christian fellows. And lending money at interest is really useful in helping economies grow. So Jews, a minority population, are often pushed into money lending by the majority Christian population so that the Christian community can more easily borrow. And this sometimes leads to tension, because a lot of Christians end up owing money to Jews. This whole web of factors is one of the things that leads to harmful anti-Semitic stereotypes today of Jewish people as rich or greedy or trying to exploit other people for money. In many kingdoms in Europe, tensions eventually boil over, and the Jewish populations are expelled. But in Spain, the monarchs are especially strong and powerful. And so...
0: They're able to really keep the lid on this sort of popular agitation against the Jews a little bit longer than elsewhere in Europe.
1: Now, this is not necessarily because Spain's Catholic rulers were more tolerant than other kingdoms.
0: Muslims and Jews are in the direct protection and governance of the crown. And so, this is not out of the goodness of their heart, but they are royal property.
1: Basically, Christians paid money in taxes to their local lords. But Jews and Muslims paid taxes directly to the crown.
0: They have always been sort of like cash machines for the monarchy. And so the idea of expelling the Jews, that's a a drastic step for them. And they're not really ready to do that. So if you're Jewish, you are probably better off in late medieval Spain than in most places in the world.
1: Ray said, better off is very much a relative term. Jews in Spain were still second-class citizens. And then, in the late 1300s, You see tensions boiling in Spain between Christian and Jewish communities. It's the same pattern that had happened elsewhere in Europe.
0: The nobles in the towns complain that they are being enslaved to Jewish usury, that they can't possibly pay the debts that they owe to Jewish moneylenders, that Jewish tax farmers are taking more than their fair share of taxes. We should also mention, This is the view, really, from Christian agitators against the Jews. Not all Christians feel this way.
1: But in the summer of 1391, one of those anti-Jewish agitators gains power.
0: Beginning in the city of Seville, you had a particular preacher named Ferrante Martinez. He was one of a sort of class of popular, charismatic preachers with a lot of devoted followers in that area of Spain, we began to really attack in sermons the Jews, arguing that the Catholics had lived too long with allowing the Jews in their midst and really calling for abandonment of Judaism as a religion that shouldn't be allowed.
1: People had argued along these lines before, and the Crown had ignored them. They'd been confident they could quell any unrest and keep all that tax money. But in the spring of 1391, The king in this particular region of Spain has died. And his 11-year-old son has risen to the throne. This kid doesn't command as much respect as his father did.
0: The crown tries to shut down, threaten, remove from his position, and Ferrante Martinez simply refuses to budge. So this angry preacher in the South keeps on preaching. He finds a willing audience of people who believe that yes, the the time has come to either get the Jews out or to force them to convert. And in early June of 1391, riots break out in and around Seville in which Jews are attacked, Their, their quarters of their cities are destroyed, their debt ledgers are torn up so that they can't collect debts that might be owed to them by Christians.
1: And these deadly riots spread across medieval Spain.
0: There are riots against the Jews in Valencia. There's riots against the Jews as far away as on the island of Mallorca in the Mediterranean. It takes really a year to a year and a half before the various royal forces are able to regain control of their kingdoms with regard to these riots.
1: In the meantime, Jewish people are being attacked and killed.
0: Many, fearing for their lives, convert to Christianity saying, okay, you win, I'll join your team, you know, please don't hurt me.
1: Sometimes Jewish people feigned conversions. Sometimes baptisms happened by force.
0: The mob will enter into a Jewish home or the Jewish area of town, grab Jews out, and drag them to a local church where they're baptized in the church. So when the dust settles... In 1392, you have a very problematic situation.
1: Some people, of course, are still Jewish and remain so. But by 1392, thousands of Jewish people in Spain have converted to Catholicism. This group of people is called the Conversos,
0: or just Cristianos Nuevos, new Christians. And they don't have Christianity for dummies. There's no easy way to learn how to be a Christian. In the past, when one or two Christians converted, the church would take them in, they'd they'd give them a new place to live, they would educate them in the ways of the church, anytime small numbers of of Jews voluntarily converted. But when you have what are perhaps thousands of coerced conversions, well, then there's a much bigger problem. There's no place to house them. There's no place to re-educate them.
1: And so, over the coming decades, Seeds of doubt start to take root everywhere. Christians asking themselves and each other, what do our neighbors
0: really believe? Many Jews and Christians look at these as false conversions. So they're technically Christian, but many Jews and old Christians alike look at them as still being Jewish.
1: The conversos themselves take different attitudes. Some of them do adopt Catholicism, but others don't.
0: Some of these new Christians say, look, obviously, I never wanted to convert. I did this just to save my skin, and I'm going to continue to be Jewish as best I can, secretly. Uh, Hopefully, no one will catch me. The problem is, no one knows which group is practicing secretly and which group has adopted Catholicism sincerely.
2: Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Fast forward to 1470. Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand are in power. They've united their kingdoms, Castile and Aragon. And their lands are flourishing. There are Jews and Muslims and Christians in Spain living in relative harmony. But there's a simmering problem. It's now been almost a century since the unrest in 1391. And yet, the descendants of those conversos are still called new Christians because, Christian Spaniards say,
0: They stem from originally Jewish backgrounds. And so this becomes a real concern for both church and state. Why is it all these generations later, and we're still making a distinction between new and old Christians? It shouldn't be. But there is still a lot of popular suspicion that in secret, the new Christians are laughing at us and still practicing Jewish rites. And so at last, King Fernando and Queen Isabella turn to the Pope for help.
1: They're trying to create this strong, united, Catholic, kingdom. And there has been an Inquisition operating in some parts of medieval Spain, looking to weed out heretics. But the Inquisition has not been specifically focusing on conversos. In the 1470s, Isabella and Ferdinand decide that it should. They're worried that tensions between old Christians and new Christians could derail their plans for a unified Catholic Spain. So they say to the Pope,
0: We need an expansion of the Inquisition because we're not talking about two or three local Christians perhaps not towing the line. We're talking about thousands of Christian families all throughout our realm that may or may not be still practicing Judaism.
1: This has never really been done before. And what's more... Ferdinand and Isabella say, we'll run the show, not the church.
0: The Pope is like, yeah, you guys need to run this yourself because it is too big for us to handle.
1: And now the church had someone else to do their dirty
0: work for them. And around 1480, 1481, the the Royal Inquisition, which later gets dubbed the Spanish Inquisition, begins operating under royal control in Spain.
1: They set up offices and tribunals all over the country to find conversos who might still be practicing Judaism.
0: These are mostly Dominican and Franciscan friars who who are part of the Inquisition. They're wearing, you know, um, priest's habits, and they do have a stamp, that is the stamp of the Holy Office. And they say, look, I I come with my credentials, I'm representing the Holy Office, and you have to come with me.
1: But there's a problem these monks have to solve that other Inquisitions didn't have to face there is no clear sense of what the conversos might be doing wrong. Because they seem to be practicing Christianity. But the Inquisition suspects that they're still practicing Judaism secretly.
0: So the new Inquisitors have to become experts in Judaism to know what to look for. And so you have these detectives trying to think of, if I were a Jew, what would I do? And they're watching the Jews to see how Jews behave and what Jewish holidays look like and what Jewish practices are. And then they are rounding up conversos and interrogating them saying, have you ever done this?
1: Sometimes the conversos say, yes, I sweep the house on Fridays. I don't work on Saturdays. But that's not about Judaism.
0: By the third or fourth generation of conversos, there are certainly some practices that conversos don't really know are Jewish. This is just the way their mother or grandmother taught them to do things. And in some communities where a lot of new Christians live together, people would say, that's how everyone in my part of town does things. I don't know.
1: The Inquisition still sometimes takes this as evidence of secret Judaism. And they gather other evidence, too.
0: They use methods including torture or, or witnesses who they, they won't announce to say what they're doing. So I could denounce my neighbor saying, oh, she is absolutely lighting candles every Friday night. And it's up to the Inquisition to believe me as the nosy neighbor or not.
1: If the Inquisition decides that someone is secretly practicing Judaism?
0: They were asked to stand out in public wearing this sort of uh, sandwich board on them with their uh, sins written on it. I have, you know, bathed the dead for burial in the Jewish fashion. I have refuse to eat pork, and they're made to parade around the, the town square, sort of publicly shaming them and really letting everybody know that we need to be on the lookout for this guy in the future. If you see or suspect he's doing anything like these crimes, contact the Inquisition.
1: So now the Inquisition is acting on reports from suspicious neighbors. And this leads to neighbors making stuff up. If they don't like the guy next door, they might accuse him of secretly practicing Judaism. Then he could be turned over to the Inquisition and threatened, shaken down for money, even tortured, all because of a neighbor with a grudge. The Inquisitors begin to realize that everyone involved has an incentive to lie. So do they believe these possibly lying Christian neighbors, the possibly lying conversos, What's really going on here? The Inquisition proceeds in this way for about 10 years, until 1491, when...
0: The head inquisitor, Tomas de Torquemada, goes back to the king and queen and says, here's the problem. We can't 100% tell who's lying and who's not, but it seems that if they are keeping alive some sort of a crypto-Judaism, they're doing it because there are still Jewish neighbors who are secretly passing them information. In other words, it's been almost 100 years now since the conversions. These people shouldn't still know how to do some of these things if they're only hanging out with Catholics. And so the suspicion shifts from the new Christians to people who seem to be aiding and abetting crypto-Judaism among this Christian population. So the chief inquisitor says, that if we get the Jews out of Spain, The new Christians will have no one left to teach them about Judaism, and eventually any kind of Jewish practices they have will disappear. And the rest of the Catholics will relax. In
1: 1492, Ferdinand and Isabella sign the Alhambra Decree.
0: Which is the Edict of Expulsion. And that document basically said, it is with a heavy heart that we have to get rid of these Jews, but we're doing it to make sure these conversos, these other Catholics, have a chance at full absorption into the Catholic world. Right? Whether we take that as face value or not, that's what they say.
1: They also might have just been trying to avoid a rebellion. And some historians speculate this happened because, a century after so many Jews became new Christians, the Crown's Jewish tax base was way smaller, so they didn't have such a strong economic reason to be tolerant. On March 31st, 1492, the royal decree goes into effect. All Jewish people living under the crown of Isabella and Ferdinand have four months to either convert or leave.
0: That's not a lot of time. There are those who believe that this short window was meant to get the Jews to convert rather than to leave.
1: Whether that was the intention or not, many Jews did convert. Some thought... This will allow me to keep my life, my property, stay in my home. Others thought, I can convert now under these life-or-death circumstances and revert back to Judaism later, quietly. But there are also a lot of Jews who say, no way. I'm not converting, so I guess I have to leave.
0: But if I have to sell all my goods in three months, I can't sell my house because everyone knows there's a hard deadline, and, and and in the few days before the deadline, I'll sell it for peanuts. And so many of these Jews take almost nothing with them into exile.
1: Some refugees walk hundreds of miles to the border with Portugal, only to be turned
0: away. They're threatened by the border guards to give them money or go back. And the Jews are like, we don't have any money. The border guards don't believe them. They all believe that Jews have hidden money in their clothes somehow. And if they don't bribe the border guards, they're not getting into Portugal. And so some of them end up returning to their hometowns. They have to walk all the way back now, shamefully accepting baptism. And now they're broke.
1: Some refugees are even tortured or killed. Some, often those who had more money, do make it to places like Italy, Turkey, the Americas, or North Africa, where they're able to practice their religion. The descendants of these people are known as Sephardic Jews. In the U.S. today, they're a minority. Most American Jews, including Jonathan Ray, have Ashkenazi heritage, tracing back to Germany and Central or Eastern Europe. As the Jews in Spain flee or convert, the Jewish quarters are taken over by Christians. Synagogues are demolished or turned into churches. And perhaps predictably, The problems for conversos don't go away.
0: The belief that, okay, you get rid of the Jews, hopefully you get rid of the suspicion among old Christians, takes a while to actually happen. And if I say a while, there are still people today who will say things like, oh, that person, I don't like that person. You know, he's got Sangre Judio, right? Jewish blood. You can tell that that guy's a bad person. He must be a descendant of those Jews.
1: In 1492, a question had begun to form. What makes someone Jewish? Is it what you believe? What you practice? Or is it blood? And the answer really depended on who you asked.
0: So the Catholics will say, you know, Father to their priest, Father, I know what you and the church are saying. I know these guys were were baptized. I know they're Catholics. I know I have to accept them as my brother but two weeks ago, that was Abraham the Jew, and I cannot wrap my head around the fact that that guy's now a full Christian. I can't, and he's not, he's not gonna marry my daughter.
1: Ray says one thing that created this division was the fact that 1391 saw these huge numbers of converts.
0: You can effectively subsume five or six newcomers into your group. 50 or 60,000 is harder. So the numbers of Jews who enter into the Catholic world, in Spain and Portugal, I think it's the size that creates the fear and the unwillingness of many Christians and Jews to believe the truth of that conversion.
1: Ray says, though of course it's not a one-to-one comparison, we see similar dynamics today around things like immigration.
0: Our laws say if you become a naturalized citizen, you go through the immigration process, and naturalization process in our country, you're an American the way everyone else is American. Well, legally, that might be true. Convincing all your neighbors that you're as American as they are, that can be difficult, especially if there are large numbers of you who still speak a different language or dress differently.
1: This story comes again and again in cycles, as groups of people try to define What makes us, us? And can other people join the group?
0: Whether they be religious societies or states or other groups, we have these rules which define our boundaries, which rarely are put to the test. It's in these moments of acute pressure on those traditions, we really get a glimpse of the complexities and the limits of human ideals and human behavior.
1: Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week.